Good morning. Good to have all of you here. Hey, we're just going to continue a series I started last week, and we're going to be talking about God's favorite stories. You know, some of God's most favorite stories are our favorite stories as well, and those are the parables uh, that Jesus told. And like all stories, uh, and good stories especially, um, we like stories because we find somebody or something uh, in the story that we can at least identify with. Now, as we study the parables, I want you to keep in mind that they really are uh, structured in a way that they really function in three ways. Uh, first of all, a parable is a picture. Just think of it as a picture because in it, we always see something that kind of reflects real life. But not just only is it a picture, it can also serve as a mirror. Because somewhere in the parable, especially in the stories that Jesus says, you're going to be able to see yourself. And so not just is it a picture, a mirror, but I also want you to think of the parables that Jesus told as kind of a window through which we can see God and we can learn more about him, his character, his ways, and we can also learn more about his kingdom. So as we study these parables over the next couple of weeks, keep in mind that every parable that Jesus told really has a central truth. And every parable that Jesus tells, there is a spiritual focus to it. Now, Jesus was not the only one who used parables or stories to make a point or to illustrate maybe a spiritual truth, although Jesus used parables uh, more often and more effectively than anybody else. And as I said last week, sometimes a parable or a story was really more of an effective way at addressing a difficult situation or tackling an issue without having to go head-to-head -head or to become confrontational uh, with it. A great example of that in the Old Testament is when the prophet Nathan is sent by God to go and to confront David over his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Now, rather than Nathan kind of risking David's denial, his wrath, his retribution, Nathan uses a story, kind of a parable, in order to kind of just come alongside David and just allows David to see himself in the story and then to react in that. And so rather than Nathan kind of coming with this accusation, David, you committed adultery, David, you murdered uh, uh, her husband, Uriah, he kind of comes with a story and kind of just, just comes underneath David in a way David is not suspecting anything. And that story kind of happens in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and there it begins in verse 1. You can follow along with me on the screen. So God sent Nathan the prophet to tell David a story. And here's the story Nathan told David. So there were two men in a certain town. One man was rich, the other was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, it grew up with his children, it ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. Rather than killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb, killed it, and prepared it 
for his guest. End of story. And I want you to notice David's reaction. It says, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having not pity. Then Nathan, there's the hook. He's hooked David. And then he kind of springs the surprise. Nathan says to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I have anointed you king of Israel, saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. So again, you see how Nathan uses a story as an approach to David. And again, he kind of just comes alongside of him instead of kind of going toe-to-toe or, or face-to-face and letting David kind of see his behavior, his sin, through this story that parallels something David himself was guilty of. And so again, this is one of the functions or purposes of stories and parables. And Jesus uses this approach quite often in parables that he told. Now really, to kind of set the tone for the parable we're going to look at this morning, I want to kind of just start by asking you a couple of questions. And I want you just to answer these quietly uh, to yourself. Here they are. Do you think God is more impressed or moved by what you do for him than he is by the time you spend with him? Do you come to church out of habit because of family pressure? Maybe you're here this morning, kind of it's Mother's Day, and mom wanted me to come to church, and so here I am, I'm here out of obligation. Do you come for potential business connections? Are you here maybe to kind of keep up an image, or or is this kind of just like a social activity for you? And these are going to kind of get a little bit more in-depth, they're more personal, Do you ever look at people who don't go to church and think you are somehow better than they are because you do go to church? Do you ever look at people in prison or jail and think you are better than they are because you're not in prison or jail? Do you ever look at people who are divorced And think of yourself as kind of maybe morally superior to them because you are not or you're a better spouse, maybe a better husband, better wife. The parable we're going to look at this morning is found in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So if you've got your Bible, uh, you can open there. And in this parable, what you're going to find is we are exposed to two totally different kinds of people, two totally different life experiences, two totally different occupations, Uh, and more importantly, what we're going to find is there are two completely different approaches 
to prayer and different approaches toward God. Now, the gospel writer in Luke makes it very clear that Jesus, who Jesus was speaking to when he tells this story. Now, I believe that before Jesus launches into this, that God had kind of given Jesus kind of discernment as to what was happening uh, or what was an issue in the hearts of the hearer uh, that, was, that was there to listen to him teach. And so Luke says that when Jesus told, that, that Jesus told this story to some, so again, he discerns, he has perception, spiritual insight there, that there are some there who had great confidence in their own righteousness and kind of scorned or judged everybody else. And so Jesus, as, as he's addressing the crowd, uh, he tells them a story because he has this spiritual sense that there were people there who did not see God the way he ought to be seen or people who saw other people the way they ought not to be seen. And so Jesus tells this story kind of knowing what is going on in the hearts of the people who are listening. And he tells a story that really kind of illustrates two approaches to God through prayer and the outcome or the result of these two approaches to God uh, through their prayers. And the first prayer that we hear is a prayer that is uh, prayed through pride. It is, it's the first approach to God is an approach out of pride. In verse 10 there it says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Again, two totally different people, two totally different occupations, two totally different life experiences, yet the one thing they have in common is they go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. He said, I thank God that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. Now in Jesus' day when he is telling this parable, and I'm sure there were Pharisees as well as others who were standing there listening to this, the Pharisees were probably the most highly regarded group in all of Judaism. There were never very many Pharisees. There were maybe, you know, uh, 3,000 at any one time. And I know so often we kind of, you know, use the Pharisees as examples of what not to be. And oftentimes we use the Pharisees as kind of spiritual punching bags. You don't want to be like them. Uh, and we're so quick to judge uh, and to criticize the Pharisees. But we also need to kind of just pause here and recognize that the Pharisees were a very religious, they were very, very devout, and they were dedicated men. And for that, we just need to give them credit. They took their religion very seriously. And so what we're going to discover about this man is not that this man was bad, uh, but really as good as he proclaimed himself to be, what we're going to find out is it wasn't good enough. Now, verse 12 continues uh, looking at the Pharisee's prayer. And he said, I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of all I possess. Now, the interesting thing about this is in the Old Testament, which is what they were under as Pharisees, they were under the Old Testament law, you were really only required to give a tenth of your income. 
But this Pharisee is kind of lifting up and saying, I don't just tithe my income, I tithe a tenth of everything I own. So in other words, what he's saying is, I am a multiple tither. And so he considered himself to be extremely generous. Uh, he also told, uh, told us that he fasted twice a week. Now, again, this is very interesting because in uh, those days, a Jew was only required by the law uh, to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. So he says, I fast twice a week. So this man's basically saying, I fast 103 more times than the law required. So in telling this story, Jesus is portraying um, a man who is hyper, super duper religious. And I'm sure at this point in the story, as people are listening to what Jesus is saying, um, they were probably pretty impressed with this guy that Jesus is describing in the story. And again, the Pharisee is making the same kind of mistake a lot of times that religious people make, and that is, is that oftentimes we tend to base our relationship more with God on what we do than what God has done for us. And you see it in the way he prayed. And I, I said to Jim, uh, first service, uh, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they pray. And I said, isn't that right, Jim? And Jim said, absolutely. I mean, I, I can pretty much tell you uh, a person's theology, what they believe about God in the way that they pray. Uh, you can almost kind of hear whether they're, whether they're close to God uh, or whether they're distant from God, just in the language, uh, the tone of voice. I mean, you can tell a lot about a person simply by the way they pray. And so verse 11 we see something about this guy in both his approach and his words in prayer. And so the Pharisee stood by himself. In other words, he kind of stood apart, away from anybody else. He didn't want to be tainted or polluted by being around sinners. And so he, he distanced himself from everybody else, and he kind of just stood apart by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everybody else. Now what's interesting is, is that this man literally prayed with himself to himself and about himself. Folks, you cannot get any more of a self-consumed, self-centered prayer than that. It was all about him. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to note that, that in this prayer that Jesus tells, the man uses the pronoun I nine times, depending on your translation. I mean, this Pharisee that Jesus is describing is clearly somebody who was very self-consumed and self-focused. There was no focus on God and certainly no focus on anybody else. It was all about him, his needs, his deeds. And he thought he was praying to God, but in actuality, he's really just talking to himself. He didn't come to the temple to pray he really kind of came to the temple to inform God how good he was and how awful everyone else was. Someone once rightly said, the only person God sends away empty is the person full of himself. And that's true. 
If this Pharisee that Jesus is describing here in the parable was a worship leader, this is probably what he would sound like. It's all about me. It is all about you. Now, the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about now I lift my name on high. All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you. Because you are unique, and you love you. There is none like me. No one else All this can for do only $19.95. Operators are standing by to serve you. And I am why I sing. And I am why I live. If you order now, you'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. One eight hundred me me me, or order online at me myself and I dot com. Call today because no one can praise you like you. Again, humor is just a way that we can use to kind of again make a serious point. And oftentimes it is more about us than we are aware of or would like to admit. Now the Pharisee in this story really kind of suffers from two basic problems, inflation and deflation. He had a very inflated view of himself and a very deflated view about God. And so in this story, Jesus is kind of identifying and he's illustrating a person who had a good eye on himself, a bad eye on other people, or a critical, judgmental eye on other people, and no eye on God at all. Here was someone who was kind of performing before an audience of one himself, and he's kind of there basically applauding himself. I mean, let's face it, this guy is the epitome of a lot of us. And again, we all have this tendency to kind of think more highly of ourselves than we should. We all tend, isn't this interesting, we all kind of tend to minimize our own sins, our own struggles, our own issues, while at the same time we will magnify the sins and issues of others, especially those sins and issues we personally don't struggle with. Isn't that interesting? Oftentimes, the more critical you are of others are about things you personally don't struggle with as well. And there are times where I'll find myself, you know, people that are struggling with addiction, you know, to alcohol and drugs. You know, I've never had that issue in my life, you know, thank God. But, you know, oftentimes, if I'm not careful, I'll just kind of find myself thinking, you know, kind of like Nancy Reagan, just say no. Just stop. Don't do it. But, you know, as I've gotten to talk with individuals and gotten to find out a little bit more about what's underneath that addiction, I find that that's just not very effective. It's not very helpful at all. 
And so again, oftentimes we kind of just tend to magnify and we, and we just tend to be very, very critical of other people's struggles and sins, especially if we don't deal in that particular area as well. So the Pharisee in this story that Jesus is telling in verse 11 says he kind of stood by himself, off to himself, and he prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. And the truth of the matter is, oh, yes, you are. As a matter of fact, Paul addresses this in Romans 3.23, and there he says, for all, every one of us have sinned, and every one of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. God has a standard for righteousness. God has a standard for holiness. And Paul says, every one of us have fallen short. We have missed that mark. Some of us may be in greater ways than others, but we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of that glorious standard. And so when it comes to sinners, we're all in the same boat. Your sins may be different than my sins. Your struggles may be different than mine. But we all struggle and we've all committed sin. It's really a closed, conceited heart that can't or refuses to see because basically like that Pharisee, we've kind of separated ourselves out. We've kind of set ourselves apart as special, different, unique how many of you ever find yourself thinking this thought? Oh man, if people would just be more like me, it would be a better world. Ever had yourself kind of thinking thoughts like that? Oh, if people would just drive like I do, we'd have less accidents. If people just ate and exercised as diligently as I do, oh, we'd have less sickness and disease in the world. Oh, if people would just get their act together the way I have my act together, it, it would just be a wonderful world. And on and on and on we go. There'll be times where Janie and I will be uh, discussing some issue, maybe going on, in our world and we'll kind of be sharing our frustration and angst over something going on and we're just we're just going on and on and you know why do people do that and why can't people do this and, and we're just kind of going on and on and all of a sudden one of us will kind of realize the direction we are heading in this conversation and, and one of us will just look at the other and say if only they were as perfect as us and then we laugh and move on to the next topic. And again, the point is, we all do this. We've all said and we've all thought things like that. If people would just be more like me, act like me, think like me, work like me, live like me, oh, what a wonderful world it would be. Except the Bible says, you know what? Stop, wait, hold it, just one minute. The world is the way it is exactly because of people like you. You're a sinner just like everyone else. You have fallen short of God's glorious standard just like everybody else. And the answer isn't that people need to be more like you. The answer is people need to be more like Jesus. And when we are more like Jesus, then it will indeed be a more wonderful world. 
Romans 12, 3 says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think, but think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And again, the issue is a closed, conceited heart will blind you to the reality um, and closes us off to others and more importantly, to God. So that is the first person, the first approach to prayer is, that, is, is pride. The second person and the second approach um, to God uh, is a tax collector. And I want you to uh, see the kind of prayer God listens for and answers, and that is the prayer of humility. The big difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector is the tax collector is as humble as the Pharisee was proud. Now, it wasn't just Pharisees who kind of looked down on tax collectors and despised them. The entire Jewish race despised them and looked down on them and avoided them and wanted nothing to do with tax collectors. So many of the people that are listening to Jesus tell this story probably had similar feelings of, of despising the tax collector, and they often just looked at them as kind of the scum of the Jewish society. Because what they would do is, if you were Jewish and a tax collector, I would maybe you know, go to you, and I would say, you owe me, Jay, $500, but I'm going to pad it with another $50, and I'm going to take the $500, give it to the government, the Roman government, which they despised, they hated, they, they loathed the idea that their tax money was going to support a government system that they did not agree with. So he would take that 500, give it to them, and then take the 50 that he padded on that and put it in his pocket. All the tax collectors did that, and all the Jews knew that they padded the tax and then they pocketed the difference. That's why they were so despised. Number one, how could you work for a Roman government and supporting what they're doing, and on top of that, rob me. So again, they're looking and saying, we're, we're all Jews here, and you're selling out your race. You're selling out your people, and that's why they were so looked down upon. So you could kind of see, again, the difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee. I mean, you could see it in, his, in the tax collector's feet. It says, the tax collector stood at a distance. See, the Pharisee separated himself from everybody else, but the tax collector, in his humility, it said, he kind of just stood at a difference. The Pharisee kind of stands out in the open to be seen and lauded by all, while the tax collector kind of just stands to the side at a distance, not really seeking anyone's focus or attention, but God's. The tax collector reminds us it's not how you see yourself, it's really how God sees you that ultimately matters. And when you see God the way God truly is, then you will see yourself the way you truly are, and you will see that you are just like everybody else in need of the grace of God. You could see it not just in his feet, you could see it in the tax collector's eyes. Verse 13 said, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. The Pharisee, he was too proud to look up, whereas the tax collector was too ashamed to look up. You could see it not just in 
his feet, uh, his eyes. You can also see it in the tax collector's hands. It says, instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector was saying, I have sinned against you, and God, I deserve to be punished. The tax collector comes to God in this humility, admitting to God what God already knew about him. And notice how Jesus ends the parable. And I got to tell you, this probably absolutely shocked and rattled the crowd as they listened to Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now I'll guarantee you, if you would have taken a poll in that crowd before Jesus spoke this final verse, as to which man they believed was accepted by God and which man was not, the Pharisee would have won hands down. And yet one of the greatest distinctions between the Pharisee and the tax collector is that striking contrast and approach between pride versus humility. The Pharisee was filled, he was overflowing with pride. You see it, you hear it. The tax collector was filled and overflowing with humility. And the two, pride and humility, can't be any different. See, pride preaches merit. Look at what I've done. Humility pleads for compassion. Be merciful to me, O God, for I am a sinner. Pride negotiates as an equal. Humility just comes in need. Pride separates by putting others down. Humility identifies with others, recognizing we all have the same need. Pride is one of those things that kind of turns up its nose, whereas humility offers an open and lifted up hand. Humility is harder to discuss because it doesn't discuss itself. It simply just gets out there and serves often without uh, with sacrifice. Humility does not claim rights. It tries to do what is right. That's a big difference. Humility does not brag about integrity. Rather, it lives it and displays it. We've been talking about the virtue of uh, humility several weeks ago in our Wednesday night Renew Services, and we've been doing a study on the book of Philippians there, um, and humility is probably one of the most misunderstood qualities that we really do need in life. We, we, don't, we don't strive for humility. Humility uh, to us, it, it's kind of close to that word humiliation. And, and we don't want to be humiliated, so we kind of avoid or keep at a distance this whole, uh, this whole uh, characteristic of humility. And so uh, a lot of people think humility kind of means you kind of just go around and, and you're saying, I'm no good, I'm nothing, I'm zero, I'm a zilch, I can't do anything right. And you know what? That's not humility. That's false humility. That, that's just degrading yourself. 
See, here's the difference. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Hear the difference in that? Humility is thinking of yourself less. When you're walking around saying, I'm no good, I can't do anything, again, that, that's, that's not humility. That's false humility. Humility is you just don't think about yourself. You think about other people. And the more you think about other people, the more your focus is on other people, the more humble you're going to be. Now, if you walked into this room or you walk into any room and your first thought is, I wonder what people think of me. I wonder what people think of the clothes I'm wearing. I wonder what people think about maybe the way I wear my hair. If you walk into a room like that and you're thinking thoughts like that, you're being prideful. That's pride. But if you walk into a room and, and your first thought is and your focus is, how can I help others? What's something that maybe I could do to serve other people? That's humility. You're being humble because, see, the focus isn't on you. The focus is more on other people. That's humility. Humility has nothing to do with what you think of yourself. Humility is what you think about other people. In other words, humility is not putting myself down. Humility is building other people up. Humble people build others up. Great people make people feel great. Little people belittle people. The Apostle Paul says in uh, Galatians 2.3, he says, instead be humble and give grace and give more honor to others than yourself. So in other words, humility is not me devaluing myself. It is valuing and honoring you more than myself. So again, listen to the humility of the tax collector. He says, oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Again, this isn't just a, a parable about pride versus humility. It's also a parable about prayer. There are two prayers, two approaches to God in here. One prayer, one approach didn't make it past the cathedral ceiling. The other approach, the other prayer made it all the way into heaven. God heard the prayer of the tax collector who was a self-proclaimed sinner. And Jesus said that tax collector, that prayer, that approach to me, that man walked home justified Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Do you know what really impressed God so much about this man? Was that this man was willing to humble himself without God having to do it. That's what it takes to be justified and to be right before God, just an honest a surrendered and a humbled heart. Forgiveness, salvation, grace, and mercy are not things that God bestows or gives to you because you have earned that. But rather, they are things that God bestows upon you when you just simply admit that you need it. While this tax collector may have been you know, dishonest and despised by, other thing, uh, um, by others, there's one thing he was with himself and God, is that he was open, he was honest, and he was very transparent about himself. 
The tax collector knew he was a sinner. He knew that he was condemned, lost, without hope. He knew where he stood with God at a distance. He knew how he felt guilty and ashamed. He knew what he needed. Mercy, be merciful to me, O God. He knew how to get it, just confess and call upon God. And he knew he got it because it said he went back home to his house justified. Do you know that word justified? It means you have been declared righteous with God. Justification means it's just as if you had never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. You don't declare your righteousness. God declares your righteousness through what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we simply receive what God has so freely given and declared. Wouldn't that be a great feeling to know in your heart of hearts that you were justified, that you could go home, you could return to your home this morning and know that you've been justified and that you've been declared right with God. And just like this miserable tax collector, we can know and be assured this morning that we're forgiven, that we are justified and in right standing with God. And again, it has nothing to do with what you've done. It has everything to do with your approach and your prayer to God. One final thing I want you to see about this parable. In verse 13, the tax collector says, be merciful to me, O God, for I am a sinner. Now that word merciful is a Greek word that goes back to the Hebrew word uh, kippur, which literally means atonement. Yom Kippur literally is the day of atonement. Now that word atonement, it simply means to cover, to make at one. Take that word atonement, split it in two, you've got the two words at one. Atonement simply means to be at one with God. And, and, and he did that on the day that Jesus Christ went to the cross and his blood was shed for you and I. That was the ultimate, final, complete atonement where we could be at one with God. Not through anything we have done, but what Christ did on our behalf. And what this tax collector really said to God and what he was expressing was, I am exposing myself. I am being honest about my heart and telling you what it truly is. It's sinful. And God, would you cover me and would you make me at one with you through the blood of the cross? And God's answer to that prayer and that approach was a resounding, yes, I will. So you can go through pride, you can come to God out of your own goodness, your prayer can be espousing your own righteousness. You can just give God a laundry list of all of your own good deeds. And I'll tell you what, you will completely miss God and you will remain entrenched in your sins. Or you can take the second approach, the second prayer, and ask God to just cover you acknowledging you are in need of everything that God has to offer and that you come to him based on his mercy, not your goodness. You come based on his righteousness, on his grace, on his merit, on everything that God has done and you simply rest in that what he has done for you and provided for us through the death and life of his son. And we just, again, we have the opportunity the invitation this morning to walk out of here justified, forgiven, 
free, at peace with God and with ourselves. And so again, Jesus kind of just ends the parable and he just basically says to us this morning, as we hear the parable, here are the two approaches, here are the two types of prayer. And it simply indicates that you and I have a choice. What's your prayer? What is your approach to God? This morning, we're going to just uh, end with worship. We're going to just have, again, a time of communion. And again, this is just a time for you to do self-reflection. It's partly why I like ending with worship. It gives you just kind of a few moments before you get out of here and kind of get caught up in the distractions and other things, the festivities of Mother's Day, which are all great. But before you do that, I want to just give you a moment just to reflect on what we've said here. A moment just to ask God, just to reveal to you your heart this morning. And that's oftentimes one of the most honest prayers is, God, show me my heart. God, show me where I need to apply this. God, show me, am I more like the tax collector or am I more like the Pharisee? And God, if I'm more like the Pharisee, God, would you just, would you give, forgive me? God, would you just, again, just lead me? And God, help me uh, to, to, to approach and to pray, God, in a way that will move earth. I want to pray a prayer, God, that reaches into the heavens. None of you, wanna, none of you want your prayers bouncing off the ceiling to this morning. So again, just asking God, God, would you just reveal my heart? God, would you just position my heart before you this morning? And God, would you just allow me to see what you see? And God, would you, would you move me? God, would you bring correction? God, would you just begin to change my heart, change my attitude, change uh, and, and take pride, God, and, and just remove that, God, and in place of that, God, fill me with humility towards you, humility towards others. And so that, that's what this is for, is just to ask God, God, reveal my heart. And then God, lead me and make me more like Jesus. This morning we have an opportunity for communion. Again, there's just a, no greater way to convey how dependent we are upon God for everything than communion. Communion really addresses our, our, our two greatest needs, and that is uh, the bread. It kind of symbolizes, again, our physical needs, our physical brokenness. And Jesus said when he took that bread, he, he said, this is my body broken for you. Jesus was broken. His body was broken for you and I because of our sinfulness. And the scripture says that by his stripes, because of what Jesus bore on the cross for us, we are healed. And Jim prayed that healing. And what we're asking is that the stripes of Jesus would be applied to you in physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional healing this morning. The other area that it provides for our spiritual needs, he said when he took the cup, he lifted it up, gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, for this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. That's a spiritual need every one of us has. So this morning as you come, again, just ask God, position my heart, position my spirit right before you to see what you see, to, to see soberly as the scriptures talk about. And then God, help me to deal with that according to your ways. 
And so this morning, we want to just, uh, again, free God to, to just work uh, in your heart, in your life. Again, you're not here to inspect other people's hearts. You're here to inspect your own and, and leave others to inspect their own heart. So, Father, we just come to you this morning. And God, we just ask, Lord, that you, again, would just reveal our hearts to us. God, you see our hearts. You see our intents. You see all of our motives. God, even if we're not completely clear on what the intent or the motives are of our heart, God, your word says that you see and know it clearly. So God, as you open our hearts through the Holy Spirit, God, and allow us to see what's going on inside, God, I just pray, Lord, that you'll also give us just again wisdom, that God, you'll just give us boldness and courage to not run away in condemnation, God, but to just come to you, God, in humility and say, yes, God, what I see, what you say, God, is true. And God, I'm lost, I'm without hope to deal with it on my own. And God, I need your help this morning. And I thank you, God, that through the cross of Christ, God, you've given me everything that I can use, God, to just be healed and to be whole, God, to overcome in those areas, Father. So this morning, God, I just ask, Lord, that as you position our hearts before you this morning, God, we thank you, Lord, that through the body of Christ we have healing and through his blood we have forgiveness. And so, Father, we come on that basis this morning, God, and we ask you, Lord, to just do a new and a deeper work in our hearts and in our lives this morning, Father, because we want, we want to be pleasing. We want to honor you, God, in our life. God, we want to honor you in our prayers, Father. So this morning we just ask, God, that you would come and just bring healing, restoration, and wholeness to our hearts. And we just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you just to stand this morning. and again.